Good morning. My name is Jarrett Stevens. I'm one of the lead pastors here at Soul City Church. And that's the question we've been asking for this month coming out of Easter. Who is this man, Jesus, that we celebrated Easter, we celebrated Christmas, but uh, that we might miss the impact of his life outside of that? Who is this man that has so not only changed the world, but changed so many lives that it bears us paying attention to who he is and specifically what it looks like for us to be invited into a relationship with him, following him with our lives? And so this morning, we're going to continue in that series by looking at who it was that Jesus surrounded himself with. But before we get to that, I just want to say a word to the week that we've had as a world. Uh, This has been a a hard week, a troubling week, a painful week for us. As many of you have, have watched the coverage from bombings in Boston to uh, chemical fires and explosions in Texas to an earthquake in China where many, many lives have been lost or greatly affected and are suffering. And it can be a bit numbing uh, after a while to sort of watch all the coverage and wonder, where is the hope? Where is God at in the midst of our pain? And I just want to say a word to you as your pastor this morning of encouragement and, and hope for those of us who watch and those of us who are affected not even necessarily by tragedies around the world, but by our own personal pain and our own personal loss. And it comes directly from this man, Jesus. In fact, it comes from the passage that we as a church committed to reading together this last week. Jesus opens the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5 with incredibly pertinent and relevant words for our world, for your world today. Jesus said this in Matthew 5, 4. He said, Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are you when you mourn. That it's not only right to mourn and grieve when we see such tragedy and such loss. It's righteous. It's the right thing to do. Is to pour your heart out before God and mourn and go, this is not right. Because when you do that, the God of comfort steps in. And the more we kind of hold on to our pain and stuff it away and push it aside, uh, the more we miss opportunities for us to encounter the comfort of God. Jesus, towards the end of his life, said these words, summing up sort of all of his teaching and things that he had just shared with his disciples. He said this in John 16, I've told you these things so that in me you may have what? Peace. Because, he says, look, in me you can have peace because in this world, you will have trouble. You will. It's just part of the brokenness of our world. Sin has afforded us many opportunities to claim our dependency on God. We live in a world, not as it should be and not as it will be, but in between. And so we will have pain. We will have trouble, but we can take heart because Jesus says, look, I have already overcome the world. I have overcome the world. I have beaten sin. I've beaten death. I've beaten pain. I am stronger and greater. And I am with you. And I'm with those who mourn. And I'm with those who've lost. And I'm with those who need to be comforted. So I thought what would be good for us as a church to do is to take our hearts, wherever they may be at, and join them with God's heart and join with the hearts of those around the world who are standing in the face of great loss and great pain right now. So can we pray together as a church with God and with them? Jesus, thank you for the reality that you were very honest. You didn't mince words. You told us very clearly 
that in this world there will be trouble, but you also promised us in this world we can have peace in you. And we need that. We need peace. We need hope. We need comfort. We need healing. We've seen a lot of loss this week. And so we need to be reminded that you have already overcome and defeated sin and death and pain and loss. And while we live in between, we can cling to the hope that you are actually with us, and not only with us, but for us. You are with those who comfort, and you are for those who need to be comforted. And so we pray, God, in some way, we would get a glimpse of that this morning. And God, I pray that we would actually be able to be a glimpse of that to others in our world this week. We would be able to be a source of, of hope and of peace in a world that so desperately needs you. So we pray this all in your name, Jesus. Amen. Amen. Well, as I mentioned, we're continuing in our series, Who is This Man?, by looking at the impact of Jesus. And specifically, this week, we're going to look at the impact of a Jesus who surrounded himself with the most unsuspecting folks, people you and I might not otherwise suspect or choose on our own. Now, I've become sort of a, a collector of Jesus knickknacks. And I'm not sure what's worse, that I'm totally into collecting Jesus knickknacks or that there's so many to be collected. And so I have Jesus wrapping paper. I have uh, Jesus. There's a beer stein in our house that has the words of Jesus on it. There's lots of stuff that people have sort of given me and I've collected along the way. I have a Jesus action figure, which I really love because uh, in the Jesus action figure, you can pull him back and he slides right back at you uh, just like Jesus apparently did. Uh, and he's, he's got a great kung fu grip. And so... Um, I wanted to bring two of my favorite Jesus statues, specifically as we look at who Jesus spent time with. And I need to let you know before I show you, these are not from Urban Outfitters or some hip, ironic, cliche place. These are real things that you can buy in the world. Someone spent their time and their life's work making what I'm about to share with you today. So I just want to say that and do with that whatever you will. Uh, this is a, a little figure that I have of Jesus with uh, two little boys helping them fight karate. And uh, you can see it right there. And it's very comforting for me to know that even in the, the, the dojo that Jesus is with me. And in fact, the friend who bought this for me, again, not ironic, real gift. There's a whole line of these. And they've become things that I like to collect and I've actually given them as gifts to others. In the gift when I got this, on the box, on the front, it said, Jesus said, turn the other cheek. And then I opened it and it said real big, so I can kick it. And I just thought, I just thought, I don't know, I don't know if that's in the Bible, but we'll go with that. This is another one that I picked up. This is Jesus helping kids play hockey. And uh, Jesus is my coach. I mean, you can take that with you to whatever sport you're playing. Uh, clearly, Jesus is a Hawks fan. I think that's obvious. What I love is that these kids are in full pads, full uniforms, but Jesus, just going to rock the robe. He's just, guys, I know it may be cold, but this is my getup. This is what I wear. In fact, this last month, I bought one for a friend. He saw these in my office. He was visiting. He saw these. He was laughing so hard. So I bought him the snow skiing one, which is one of my personal favorites, where the two kids are skiing down the slope in full like bibs and skis and boots and all that stuff. And Jesus is in the middle with them in the robe. And instead of normal skis, he just has two by fours, barefoot, and a leather strap over them. So clearly when Jesus said the first shall be last, he was last in line at the rental shop. This is all they had left. And that's what he had to, uh, 
That's what he had to wear. All right, so kind of interesting to consider. I'm not sure if these are totally accurate or not. I like the sentiment, the idea that Jesus is with us. And I think for many of us, if we were to be honest, I think we have sort of this sentimentalized view of Jesus that his whole goal and purpose is to be with us to help us do the things that we want to do or the things that we need to do. So it's very comforting for us to think about a Jesus who is with us. And that's very, very, very true. But I think he might have come for more than just that than just to be with us to help us do the things that we want to do or that we need to do. In fact, I think we get a pretty clear glimpse into who Jesus is by specifically looking at who he chose to surround himself with and who was it that continued to surround themselves around him. Now you have here in Jesus, as we've looked at the last couple weeks, this central figure in the human story. This character who stands alone above all other leaders, religious leaders alike, he stands alone above all of them in our human history. And yet the reality when you look at it, as we're going to this morning, the life of Jesus, he did not often stand alone. There were many, many people around him at all times. And the people that he chose to surround himself with give us a glimpse, not only of the heart of God, but I think the life that Jesus is inviting you and me into. I think this is a good point for me to say, those of us who are in this place or watching online and are investigating who this Jesus is, I love that you're hearing the truth of who this Jesus is this morning from God's word. Because I think Christians have not always done the best job exemplifying specifically what we're going to talk about this morning, about who Jesus surrounded himself with. I think we can kind of swing the pendulum, unfortunately, the other way. In fact, I think if you were in charge of Jesus's PR campaign, you would go to Jesus and say, okay, Jesus, here's how you really need to do it. If you want your legacy to last, if you want your impact to go beyond this region and beyond your life, you're going to need to buddy up with the Roman officials. You're going to need to get in good with politicians. You're going to need to stop saying sort of, you know, these things that really kind of write them off. You need to actually get in line with them because they can do you favors and kind of promote you further along than you ever could on your own. Jesus, you're going to need to sort of make peace with the religious leaders in your day. I know know you keep calling them whitewashed tombs and you call them hypocrites in public. Can we just pull back on that a little bit, Jesus? Because they hold sort of spiritual influence over the community. And so if you want your spiritual insight to sort of have any kind of impact, you're going to need to be friends with the religious leaders. They're the gatekeepers. Again, as we said last week, a thousand gatekeepers for only a few gates. Jesus, if you want your impact, your teachings, as we looked at last week, to live beyond you, it would make sense for you to go and spend some time with some of the philosophers in Greece. They're really coming up with some great stuff over there. You're going to want to actually get your teachings kind of into the mix and sort of hear what they have to say, because that's the only really way that you're going to have a chance of this thing outlasting you. I think if you and I were in charge of Jesus' PR, we might give him other advice than the advice and direction that he took from his heavenly father. Specifically when it comes to the people that Jesus hung around. Jesus... We get it. We love your teaching. We think it's great. But do you really have to hang out with these kinds of people? It's bad for your image. And on top of that, Jesus, they can do nothing for you. What can these poor, these oppressed, these overlooked, these sick people do for you, Jesus, to further your mission and your ministry? You need to align yourself with the people who can really make a difference. And yet, as we see, and we're going to look in Matthew chapter 9, This morning, Jesus continued to to not only not avoid those around him who were different and at times difficult, he didn't just not avoid them. He walked directly to them and he invited them into relationship with him. 
And as he did, he brought with him a sense of dignity and honor and esteem and significance, compassion, love, and presence. Again, Jesus kind of shared dignity without difference. He shared dignity without any sense of discrimination to men and women, to people who were from his community, outside of his community, those who were rich, those who were poor, those who were sick, those who were well. When he comes in his presence, he brings love and dignity and compassion and purpose and meaning. And I want us to look for a second at just how he did that, just in one day with Jesus. We're going to look at one snapshot that we have from Matthew chapter 9 of one day. And I want you to specifically look for a Jesus who doesn't just sort of, you know, not avoid or smile politely, but literally walks directly to and allows himself to be surrounded by those that you and I might otherwise find different and difficult and that we might actually avoid in our everyday lives. So if you would grab a Bible and open to Matthew chapter 9. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, that's okay. We've got you covered. There should be a blue Bible right in front of you. And I'm going to ask that we all, we're going to be walking literally through a whole chapter of the Bible this morning. And so I'm going to ask you to grab a Bible so we can all be playing out of the same playbook. Grab a pen too. We're going to be circling some things, writing some notes down. So you've got, if you've got your own, that's great. If you don't and you want a blue Bible, it's page 680 in the blue Bible, page 680 in the blue Bible. We're going to look at Matthew chapter 9 and specifically at the dignity that Jesus brings and the people that he chooses to surround himself with. All right, so just a little quick context. From everything we can understand from this text, we are a day or two at the most outside of the Sermon on the Mount, which we all read together as a church this last week. So you have the Sermon on the Mount, this big ministry moment for Jesus and his teaching, and then he kind of has to pull away a little bit because the crowds are so overwhelming. And as he does that, he kind of crosses the Sea of Galilee and realizes that there's people there who have great needs and are, you know, surrounding him there. And so just because he is also a man, he's God, but he's fully a man, he has limits and limitations. And so he says, okay, I need to kind of pull back in a little bit. And as he's coming back to the shore of his hometown, we, we see actually uh, these encounters. I want you to just pay attention to Jesus's schedule for this one day, his to-do list for this one day in the life of Jesus. Let's start with Matthew 9. Verse 1, again, Jesus stepping out of the boat, coming across the boat of the Sea of Galilee, crossed back over and came to his own town, and some men brought a paralyzed man lying on a mat. So Jesus is just like, they're just tying up the boat, and these guys come walking up to him. Oh, Jesus, we're glad you're here. We were just walking by, and we happened to see you. Like, they were waiting for him to come back. And they brought with them a paralyzed man who himself had lived on the outskirts of society would have to sort of beg, and I think it's very symbolic that this is someone who could not get there on his own. He was dependent upon others, specifically in this point, his friends. Now, this is very interesting. When Jesus saw whose faith? What does it say? Cool, okay, 11 o'clock. Let me just let you know what's going on. <laughs> Every now and then, I'm gonna pause, and I'm gonna, like, the answer is really literally right in front of you. This is the easiest quiz you're ever going to get. And so every now and then I'll pause on an important word. I do that because I want to draw attention to the text and I want to make sure that you're still awake. So we're going to try that again. Every now and then I'm going to pause. You say the word back to me. Can we do that together? See, like even that, I'm not even sure. That was a, that was, you can't get easier than that. All right. So let's just try it again. Whose faith did they see? Whose faith did Jesus see? Their faith. Jesus saw their faith. He was moved by their faith. And then he said to the man, take heart. Take heart. We're going to see this phrase again. Take heart, son. 
Your sins are forgiven. Now that's interesting. They brought him because of their faith to a Jesus they believed could heal their paralyzed friend on the outskirts of society, someone that people would not spend any significant amount of time with, someone that people felt pity for, but not necessarily compassion on. Jesus looks at their faith and says, son, your sins are forgiven. So great is the dignity and the healing power of Jesus that it speaks not only to our physical needs, but to our spiritual needs, our emotional needs, our whole self. Jesus says, your sins are forgiven. They didn't even show up asking for that, but they got a much better deal for their friend. And the man gets up and walks. He's healed. Moving on, jump down to Matthew 9, verse 9. As Jesus went on from there, you're going to see that phrase repeated a couple times. As he went on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at a tax collector's booth. Now just pause right here real quick. If you're familiar with kind of the context of that day, tax collectors, again, we have the sick and the outcasts and poor, the, the oppressed that we're going to look at. Tax collectors were just like a notch kind of right above them in the social totem pole. Not a lot of respect, not a lot of love for tax collectors, because what they had done is they were Jewish folks who had sold out their people to make a buck from the Roman Empire. So these are folks who imposed you know, just unreasonable, unreasonable taxes. They would tax you for your coming and your going. They would charge outrageous rates for people just to steal every nickel and dime they could get. They would give you parking tickets upon parking tickets. They would charge you outrageous amounts just to park in front of your favorite restaurant. They in, in continue to not even fix the pot. Oh, wait, that's Chicago. I'm sorry. I was, I got off on a tangent there, but I think you get the idea. Not at all respected. Now, who is it that makes the first move? Is it Matthew who comes to Jesus, or is it Jesus who goes to Matthew? Jesus, Jesus goes to Matthew, walks up to his tax collector booth, and says, follow me. Follow me, he told him. And look at this response. Matthew got up and followed him. I wish, I wish my response and obedience to Jesus was that clear, that, that quick, so often I give him conditions and terms. Okay, Jesus, I know. I know you're asking me to do that. I know you want me to follow you there. Can you give me a sign? Can you show me? Can you sort of make these things happen? Jesus says to Matthew, get up, leave that life, follow me. And he does in an instant. Now look at how great and imposing is Jesus. Jesus invites himself over to Matthew's house for dinner that night. <laughs> Jesus is like, okay, this is a big deal, Matthew. You may not realize this, but we need to celebrate. We need to have a party. And so Jesus goes to Matthew's house, and look at what it says. While Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with him and his disciples. Now, in another translation and in another account of this story, the word used is many tax collectors and notorious sinners were there. Notorious implying like these people sinned so big that they had a rap sheet just for their sins. People knew them. They had a reputation. And here's Jesus in the midst of them at home. In fact, having a party, having a meal. And his disciples are there kind of wondering where they should fit in all this and look at the interaction that happens in Matthew 9, 11. When the Pharisees, now they're the religious leaders, they're the ones who did it right in their eyes. When the Pharisees saw this, they asked who? His disciples. Isn't that interesting? They have an issue with Jesus, but they go to who? His disciples. I don't know if it's because they were so intimidated by him. They, weren't quite, they didn't want to get close to some of the notorious sinners that he was surrounding himself with. I don't exactly know, but they have an issue with him. But they go to his disciples and say, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? And on hearing this, because my hunch is they may have asked it loud enough so that Jesus would hear it. On hearing this, Jesus said, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. 
Now go and learn what this means, going back and pulling passages from the Old Testament. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. I desire compassion, not religious activity. I would rather your heart be broken than you fake it for another minute. Jesus says, I desire mercy, not sacrifice and hitting all the religious marks. And for those of you who feel like you're just not very good at religion, praise God. Amen. You are welcome in the presence of Jesus because he wants hearts that are honest and open and broken and full of mercy and compassion and dignity as we see here in this passage. He says, I've come to call not the righteous or those who think they have it right, but sinners because they know how desperately they need me. You see what Jesus is doing here? He's saying, look, this is who not only I'm going to be with, this is who I am for, people who know they need me. Well, moving on from there, jump down to verse 18. His cousin, John the Baptist, his disciples start questioning Jesus about why he doesn't follow some of the religious practices. And so after sort of explaining some of that, jump down to verse 18. While he was saying all this and kind of trying to explain what he was about and who he was for, look at this. This is very interesting. A synagogue leader came and knelt before him. This is very important because the Pharisees, just moments ago at Matthew's house or the night before at Matthew's house, whatever kind of the time frame was, the Pharisees had accused Jesus and and said, we need to keep our distance from this person because he's doing it all wrong. But here you have a leader from the synagogue, the place of worship in the Jewish faith, a leader in the synagogue, a religious leader came and just knelt before him and said, my daughter has just died. Now, I just want to hit pause right there because I think he could have come to him like many other religious leaders did, like Nicodemus did, and come with his big theological questions for Jesus. His big sort of like, okay, help me understand the big concept. And I think there's a time and a place for that. But when pain comes to your front door, all those things go out the window. And when you're faced with the week we've kind of had as a world or you're faced with your own personal pain, all your sort of big questions and theories about God go out the window and all you want to know is, will you help me? Can you be with me? And that's how broken this religious leader's heart was. My daughter has just died. But come, he said, just put your hand on her and she will live. Just touch her and she will live. So Jesus got up and went with him, and so did his disciples. We get that picture. They just keep following Jesus, not sure what he's going to do next. And look what happens next. Jesus is leaving that moment, going to heal a religious leader's daughter who had died. And just then, a woman who'd been subject to internal bleeding for 12 years, that means she was hemorrhaging and bleeding, and it couldn't be fixed, and it couldn't be stopped. And consequently, already in that culture, you have women who were seen at a lower status than men. Not at all how God designed it, not at all how God intended it, sadly still how it is in some places in our world today. So you have women who are already at a lower place than men, who weren't allowed to be in that close proximity to religious leaders and rabbis and to men in certain settings. But not only that, she's bleeding. She's physically sick. So she's sort of a double outcast in that moment, forced to keep her distance from society. And so here she is on the perimeter of Jesus, subject to bleeding. She comes up and she touched the edge of his cloak. A lot of significance in why she chose to grab there that we don't have time for this morning, but she knew if she could just touch the edge of his cloak, she said to herself, if I only touch his cloak, I will be healed. Do you see the proximity that people felt with Jesus? 
that they could get right up into his presence. And if I could just, the man said before, if you would just touch my daughter. She said, if I can just touch his cloak, I don't even need to touch him. Just his cloak, I'll find healing for my life. And look what happens. Jesus turned and saw her. And look at the words he says again that we saw at the very beginning of the chapter. Take heart, daughter. Take heart. Be encouraged. Society has written you off, but I have written you into the story and the family of God. Take heart. Your faith has healed you. And the woman was healed at that moment. Now again, (laughs) look at Jesus' agenda for the day. On his way to healing, he heals someone. So powerful is the healing power of God. Presence of Jesus. On his way to heal someone, he heals someone. Moving down to the next verse, verse 23. Finally, Jesus gets to the synagogue leader's house. And he saw the noisy crowd and the people playing pipes. And basically, people had already sort of given up and they'd gone to like full tilt mourning mode. And so they're mourning and they're playing their dirges and they're kind of going through what they know they have to do. Genuinely sad over the loss of this girl, sort of moving on to, the, you know, moving on. And Jesus said to them, I love this, go away, go away. You, you clearly don't get it. Go away. This girl is not dead, but asleep. And look at their response to Jesus Christ, Savior of the world, person who stands at the center of human history. They laughed at him. Oh, you, oh, that's sweet. You think she's asleep. That's, oh, he doesn't get it. He doesn't get it. She's dead. We all know it. We saw it. We were here. Her dad said, we're here. We know she's dead. This is time to move on. She says, no, no, the story is not done. And so after the crowd had been put, I love that. There's a very, (laughs) the choice of that word had been put outside, not exited quietly, just put outside, get out, go away. He went in and took the girl by the what? By the hand, see the touch, the presence of of Jesus, the dignity that comes from touching from being present, from being with, touched by the hand. And what happened? She got up. I mean, that's a pretty good day. Like you start off the day dead and you're not dead by the afternoon. That's pretty significant. (laughs) Pretty significant. She got up. She went on about her life living. Look, Jesus continues to move on. Jump down to verse 27. As Jesus, here's the phrase again, as Jesus went on from there. Again, just moving about. As Jesus went on from there, two blind men followed him. And this is what they would do. They would have to always stay at the distance, always stay in the periphery, the perimeter of society. Two blind men followed him, calling out, have mercy on us, son of David. Have mercy on us. Remember what Jesus said. Forget your religious practices. I want people who get this. I want mercy. And so what do they ask for just a few verses later? Mercy. Would you have mercy on us? And so he'd gone indoors. He kind of pulled them aside and the blind men came to him and, and asked him, he asked them, do you believe that I'm able to do this? Again, asking, do you have the faith to believe? Yes, Lord, they replied. And then he what? Touched their eyes. Again, touched presence. Touched their eyes and said, according to your faith, let it be done to you. And their sight was restored. Their sight was restored. Moving on, jump down to verse 32, as if this wasn't enough. While they were going out, a man who was demon-possessed and could not talk was brought to Jesus. Again, this is something that's pretty common in the story and the life of Jesus, pretty common around our world. We don't tend to see it a lot. 
But there's someone who was demon-possessed, whose life was literally taken over by the forces of hell and couldn't talk. And so Jesus just drove the demon out. And the man who was mute actually spoke. And now the crowd who previously had laughed at Jesus, now the crowd was amazed and said, nothing like this has ever been seen in Israel. And then pulling up a little bit, Jesus looks out. Can you imagine? He's sort of reflecting on his day. Reflecting on all that God had given him the power to do that day. All the people that he had interacted with. And you see a genuine movement of compassion flowing out of the heart in the words of Jesus. Look at what Jesus, sort of his perspective on all this is, and then we're going to read his invitation to each of us. Verse 36. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them. He cared for them. When he saw these crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd, left to themselves to fend for themselves. And then he turned to his disciples, and this is where the invitation comes to you and to me and anyone who's serious about following Jesus. And he said to his disciples, look, the harvest is plentiful. There is enough work to do with God and for God in this world. We'll never run out of work to do with God and for God in this world. But, he said, the workers are few. Those who are willing to walk to the places that everyone else walks around. Those who are willing to be with those who everyone else turns their backs on. The workers who are willing to walk into this harvest are few. So, he says, ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field, to send out workers like you and like me to go to those who Jesus went directly to and brought the power of his presence, his healing, his hope, his love, his compassion, his dignity. Who is this man that we're still talking about him 2,000 years later, and this is who he surrounded himself with? How do you maintain any sense of significance when you surround yourself with the seemingly insignificant all day? Who is this man that gave so much of himself to people who could give very little on the surface, at least, to him? They could offer very little to him, and yet he offers himself to them again and again and again. Who is this man who had such a small window to accomplish the mission that God had sent him here to earth to accomplish, and yet he spends such a significant amount of time with people who had so little to offer him? Again, if you are trying to set out to leave a legacy for your life, to ignite a revolution, a movement that would outlive your life, how would you go about doing it? Who would you choose to surround yourself with? My hunch is, if you're anything like me, it wouldn't be the people that Jesus surrounded himself with. And yet there was something about him and something about them. And I'm not sure if it was that Jesus, when he looked at the, over the crowds and he saw that they were hopeless and that they were helpless and they were people who were being kind of left to themselves, I don't know if it was something that he saw in them, other than we see again and again the dignity that he saw in them, sons and daughters of the living God, his father God. I don't know if it was just that he saw something in them, but that they saw something in him. They saw that presence, that compassion, that mercy, that dignity. And if I'm going to be a serious follower of Jesus in any capacity, I have to ask myself the same question. Does anyone see that in me? Does anyone see in me 
this kind of love and compassion and mercy and dignity and honor, specifically when I look at those who I would consider poor or oppressed or overlooked in the world. I got a really clear glimpse of this a couple years ago. And I had to travel halfway around the world to really see it. Uh, we had, Gene and I were part of leading at a church where we partnered with World Vision, a great organization that we partner with to run the marathon. And we had sponsored a couple hundred kids through the ministry that we were a part of, specifically in the country of Zambia. And so we had set out to go and see a year later, one summer later, kind of the work that World Vision had done and to go and see the kids that we'd specifically sponsored. We wanted to go see our kids. And so we kind of led this big trip and we partnered with World Vision. We took about, you know, a dozen or so people with us and went to Zambia and had a very tight schedule, but we, we wanted to see the work that God was doing there. And it was so amazing. We would go sort of from village to village. And it was really great. The first village that we went to, community that we went to, we got to see our daughter, Dorothy, that we sponsor. And we've sponsored Dorothy for, for years now. We also sponsor another boy named Charles. And so to go and be with this child that has been previously to that point a picture on your refrigerator is a very powerful thing. And so we had packed with us all these gifts. We had brought all these gifts. Everyone who had sponsored kids from the church that we were a part of kind of wrote letters and little gift packs. And we brought all these soccer balls that we would deflated and, you know, had them real tight so we could give soccer balls and little paper airplane things and all kinds of little toys and gifts that we wanted to give to them. And so we were able to give her some jewelry and some makeup and had this sort of great moment. But then we had to get back on the bus. And it was a very, 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 very hard thing to leave. And someone on our trip reached out of the bus and took a picture of us, you know, grabbing onto her hand as we're pulling out. And just going, okay, God, there has, to, there has to be something more going on here than just this little tour that we're doing. And what we found as we went from village to village was we thought we were there to show up and bring some hope and some you know, encouragement and a connection to these people back in the States who are praying for you and caring for you. And you know what we found every time we would show up and these people had been preparing for our visit for months and showed up with gifts for us. We had our little soccer balls and Scooby-Doo paper airplanes going, okay, we, I think we might have missed something here. Because they prepared dances and songs and feasts for us, gifts for us. They would give us, you know, walking sticks, spears, like real spears. <laughs> I don't know how we're going to get this through security, but I'm going to try. I'm going to try. In fact, in one of the villages, they had made a chair, a beautiful chair that they'd handmade for us. And I said, this is so great. We can't take this back with us. And Jeannie said, oh, yes, we will. And she found a way to get it back. In fact, that chair from Zambia sits in our son's room to this day. He uses it as a base for his G.I. Joes. But the point is, it was a gift. And we began to realize, oh, wait a second, wait a second. This is not about us coming and bringing something to them. This is something that God actually wants to bring to us right now. The last village we went to, our schedule had gotten a little behind because we were so overwhelmed by the festivities and by the, the gifts and the honor that these folks brought to us. That we got to the last village and realized we only had a couple minutes to just say hello and to give handshakes and hugs and to make quick connections, to exchange some gifts and and then we had to get back in the, the vans and, and head back to our hotel. And so two of the vans had packed up and we're heading back. And it, was, it just didn't feel right. Like, oh man, we just, we just got here. Now we have to leave. 
and there was a, a, one more van that only had two passengers sort of left on the driver, and it was actually my wife Jeannie and, and Doug who's sitting right here, and you know, they kind of saw all of us go and then looked over their shoulder and realized, like, the party hadn't even started yet, and realized that these folks had prepared a major feast and celebration for us, and we were driving off down a dirt road to leave them. And so Jeannie and Doug quickly assessed, you know, we need to stay. We need to stay. And we didn't know that they planned to stay. And so they stayed and encountered the whole festivity for all 15 of us, for the two of them. <laughs> there was a meal served to them. There was at one point a live chicken given to Doug and offered to him. And again, not sure how I'm going to get this through security, but thank you. Do we, I don't know what we're supposed to do with this. At one point, they picked them up, put them in chairs and picked them up and were carrying them around in these chairs of honor. And Jeannie has said to me many times that she wants us to continue that practice in our home. <laughs> Just pick her up and carry her around the house in a chair of honor. And so the two of them helped the rest of us see that we weren't these well-off, more fortunate people going to help these not-so-well-off, less fortunate people, but that there is a brokenness in us and that there is, in every one of us, a desperate need for the loving presence of Jesus. That I'm not the one who gets to bring that to others. My job is to receive that from God. And then I actually have something to offer to others. The reality is, which they saw in living color, is that dignity can only truly be exchanged when my poverty has been fully embraced. My poverty has been fully embraced. Dignity can only be truly exchanged. Whether it's here in the city, whether it's with someone at your work, whether it's the partnerships that we have around the city, wherever it is, dignity can only be truly exchanged when your poverty, when you realize that you are actually one who is poor in spirit. When that is embraced, then you have something to offer then you have something to give to the people that you actually encounter on the street who your first inkling is to avoid. But when you realize that their brokenness is no different than yours, theirs just may be more on the surface and yours is better covered up. Then you have some, there's, now dignity can be exchanged. When you realize that the person at work that is not only just different from you, they're very difficult. And when you realize that the reality is they're just as difficult as you are, you're just difficult in different ways. And there's probably some people who feel the same way about you. You just don't know it. And when you get in touch with your brokenness, now dignity can be truly exchanged because you realize you are one who's in desperate need of the love of the Father. Isn't it interesting that Jesus chose to start his Sermon on the Mount, which, again, we all read together this last week and studied this last week. He chose to begin the Sermon on the Mount by, I don't think, just identifying groups of people but I think he began by inviting all of us into. He said, blessed are you who are poor. Blessed are you who mourn. Blessed are you who are meek. Blessed are you who hunger. Again, I don't think Jesus was just talking to specific groups of people. I think he was inviting us into the awareness and the reality of our own brokenness and our own need for him. 
And when I begin to get in touch with that, that I am not the one who has to bring this to the people around me. I'm not the one who has to sort of make a difference. But when I recognize my own brokenness and go, okay, you know what? I, just like you, am in desperate need of this Jesus. I need mercy just as much as you. Well, that opens the door for it to actually be exchanged. So I'm going to invite Alana's story to come back up. And I want to give us some homework assignment that we can all do together as a church this week to put this reality of this man, Jesus, this one who brought honor and dignity and compassion and love to everyone that he encountered. I want to give us an opportunity to do that specifically this week. One of the things that we get to do is when we take our kids to school in the morning, there's a question we always ask them. Our son, Elijah, who's seven, our daughter, Gigi, who's almost five, And we ask them right before we get to school, hey guys, who's someone today at school that you can show God's love to? Who's someone today at school that you can show God's love to? And so they'll typically start with their like besties, you know, they'll go, Katie, you know, I want to show it to Seth or, you know, whoever it is like, okay guys, that's awesome. That's great. Is there someone else maybe? Because I think you're going to share God's love with them anyway. Is there someone else you can share God's love with today? Maybe someone who who might not otherwise, you know, see it. Maybe someone who's even a little hard for you and I'll kind of think through, yeah. Usually for Elijah, it's a kindergartner. It's like, yeah, because he's in first grade. They just all bug him. It's like, yeah, I think so. So we'll kind of push through. Okay, how are you going to show God's love to them today? Well, maybe when I see him, I can say, hi, Derek, it's good to see you this morning. Awesome, buddy, great place to start. Or Gigi will say, maybe I can tell you know, her that her dress is really pretty. I'm like, you probably would have done that anyway, but great, <laughs> great place, great place to start. Great place to start. And it was so sweet this last week. Our son, Elijah, was so excited when he got home from school. I said, hey, buddy, who did you share God's love with today? He goes, dad, I shared it with my whole class. We kind of walked in and he was like, I shared it with so-and-so, I shared it with so-and-so. I'm like, oh, buddy, I'm so proud of you. You could see just how alive he felt. He goes, dad, I even shared God's love with kindergartners. <laughs> like, buddy, that's hard for me to do. So I love that you're doing that. That's incredible. It's so sweet to see someone who says, you know what, I have something to offer. I have something to share. Because it's something that I desperately need and have received myself. So your homework this week is simply that. Who are you going to show God's love to this week? And specifically, church, I want to push in, specifically for those of us who'd call ourselves followers of this man, Jesus. Here's the challenge for you. What would it look like for you this week to offer to someone, to offer God's love to someone who can offer you nothing in return? What can you offer to someone this week who can offer you nothing in return? Because we're good at like sort of doing things when it works good for us. And, you know, I want to reach out to this person because I know that that'll help me when it comes time for this promotion. Or I want to do this because that'll maybe lead to a lead for a job later on. That's fine and good. Jesus says, you know, the world does that. I've called you to something greater. What can you offer to someone who can offer you nothing in return? Because you recognize and realize that you too are someone who desperately needs God's love and grace in your life. Who desperately needs his mercy his compassion. You're aware of your own brokenness and therefore dependence on God. And so then dignity, honor can be exchanged. I bet, I bet even as I say that, there's someone at work that you go, oh, yeah, yeah, I know who it is. It's tough for me to be nice to this person or I'm trying to be cordial. 
I'm going to ask you to push in a little deeper this week and follow this Jesus to a place that may feel uncomfortable and even a little fearful to you. I'm going to ask you to offer God's love and dignity and presence to them beyond pleasantries, expecting nothing in return. This week, I bet you're going to encounter someone at a stoplight or as you're walking to work, walking around the city, whose need is very much on the surface. And I want to encourage you, instead of just feeling sorry or feeling guilty or, or feeling nothing, that you would actually walk to. Find out a name. Give a small touch. Ask about their story. Offer whatever it is that God may be prompting you to offer in that moment. I don't know. My hunch is this. I think every one of us, God is going to lovingly give opportunities to walk to instead of around this week. And so well, can you imagine what would happen if that's what our church was actually known for? Can you imagine if our church was known as this people, I don't know why it is, they love everyone. Not just the folks who kind of keep coming, but the folks who will never go to their church. Not just the folks who can sort of give and extend what God's doing, but folks who will never give to their church. They just love, they love, and they love. Why is that? Could it be that we're just that much more aware of God's love for us and aware of our brokenness that we finally have something to offer? So that's our homework for this week. I think every one of us, God's going to lovingly give opportunities to do that. And I want to give us an opportunity to respond to him right now, to literally follow him, to put our feet in motion and follow him to where he's leading us. We're going to sing to him in a moment, but I want us to have an opportunity to respond to God's goodness by giving back to him, something we do as part of our worship every week. It's a way that we can, in small part, say, God, you have already provided for me. You already know my needs and are providing for me, and so I want to give back to you. And so we give out of gratitude. We give with joy. We give with expectancy that God is going to do much with what we give to him. He's already done so much for us and in us. He wants to do something through us. And so we're going to give in a moment as we sing. But I thought I could pray for us and we can consider how we're going to follow Jesus more closely this week. Let's pray together right now. Jesus, thank you that you not only walked to those, to those who everyone else walked around. You not only walked to the obviously marginalized, the obviously poor, the obviously sick. But the truth is, Jesus, you walked to me. You walked to each of, in fact, you've walked right up to each of us this morning. And you've made the full power of your presence available to us. You've brought with you what you always bring with you, dignity, healing, hope, freedom, peace. And we want to be people who aren't afraid to admit that we need it, that we need you. And in our neediness, in our brokenness, we know that you actually can then do something not only in us, but through us. So give us eyes to see first our own needs and then the needs of those around us, Jesus. Thank you that you, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but you lowered yourself. You took the lowest position you considered yourself a servant, even to the point of death on a cross. And so, Jesus, we want to follow you to that place, to not think of ourselves as better than or more fortunate than, but to be those who are just as needy and are finding our hope and healing and dignity in you. We pray this all in your name, trusting that you will give our feet the courage to follow you wherever you may call, wherever you may lead this week. We pray in your name. Amen.